but at this stage we can confirm that it seems like the world number one Ash Party has retired. The internet connection is sketchy from the colony of Australia, but at this stage it does seem that Ash Party is no more a tennis player. What will she do next, Matt? Yeah, I think she she must want different things out of life if I was I can't imagine it because like you know you if you were a professional tennis player you just you'd be living the dream and um you I would I would be living the dream personally I would have you know access to all of that um fame and money and um opportunity and being on the tour it just be would be I would think it would be you know, at least you could do it until you were 30 or 35 even. Ash is so young. I Yeah, she just must want different things out of life, but I can't imagine it. Yeah. Because also, if you're a tennis player, you've got this platform, you've got more, you could do other shit as well. Yeah, it's, it's really mystifying for a 25-year-old who's number one in the world to just call it quits. I mean, okay, we're projecting our own value system onto her. I think it's interesting because Ash doesn't seem like a person who's outwardly uncomfortable with it, you know? Like, she does endorsement deals. She is able to perform at the highest level. I mean, I was thinking immediately about Naomi Osaka in light of all this and how deeply uncomfortable she appears to be with everything about playing tennis, maybe besides the actual play part, but like all the fame and dealing with the, the noise and social media and the attention. And it doesn't seem like Ash Barty feels that way. So yeah, it must just be that she has other priorities. You know, maybe she wants to get back on the cricket tour. Maybe, uh, maybe she wants to take up netball. Um, maybe she wants to start a family. I don't know. Lots of valid options out there for her. Gosh, I was interested to see how far she could go as well, because we're only starting to see the beginning of her dominance in the women's game. You know, she's there were questions about the validity of her number one status because of COVID and everything, but then she won a couple more slams. And, you know, when she's on her game, she's just doing these amazing winning streaks and winning a lot of tournaments in a row, and no one's really coming close to her. She's like, she went through the Australian Open without dropping a set. She was barely dropping a game in the early rounds. Yeah, that's right. I was, I was just interested to see what else she could do, but, you know, I think with her endorsements and with Vegemite and Jaguar and whatever, it all seems quite, you know, like she doesn't get her a chance for her own personality to shine, to shine through. A couple of times when she's been doing community work in like the Northern Territory with Aboriginal, young Aboriginal tennis players and stuff, you've, I've seen like some communication from her that's saying like, oh, I've just had, you know, such an amazing time and this is, you know, really um, the kind of work I love to do. But then like, you know, when she's on the tour and she's doing the endorsements, 
and she's saying all the right things at the press conference. Like she is like, I think we've talked about it before. She is a model of like, just a very boring press conference where you just say all the right things. Yeah. And right. And you know, you watch her in an endorsement ad and it, it doesn't seem like a real person, which doesn't mean that she is not a real genuine person underneath all of that, but she's kind of going through the motions there. And right, she's like a sports cliche factory in a way when it comes to like post-match interviews. I've struggled to really feel anything for her. I feel like, you know, I get this impression you're a little closer to the story of her as, a, as an Australian of Aboriginal background and the history with Yvonne Gulagong and... Yeah, I love that. It's raining in Sydney, like it has been every day since Ash Barty retired. And it's raining in my heart because I love Ash. I love the way she plays with that slice backhand. Seems to float over the court and take a little more time to get there, giving you more time as the spectator to watch and to be present in the moment with Ash that neutralizing slice. What's gonna happen next, you don't know. It sort of elongates the points. And then she might finish with a flourish with a forehand out of nowhere, or one of her pinpoint lobs off either wing. But also, she's a Nyarago woman. She's an Aboriginal woman. And in Australia, being Aboriginal and being successful is to be successful against all odds. You know, the Aboriginal people have faced genocide since colonization by the British in the late 18th century up until now. It's, they've survived and yeah, sure, it's just in sports and we need so much more change politically for justice and healing to happen, but it's fantastic to see in this context, to see Ash having so much success. Yeah, that's a pretty wild, unexpected announcement. Alex uh, Alex just texted us from his work. Bit of a sort of a shock, not really a shock, in a way, I think. You can believe it a bit more because of the first time. I guess Iga Sviantek is now number one in the world. I wonder if that takes effect immediately. No, I didn't think so. Like, she's still got the points. You see players that formally retire and then they're still, you know, it's take, it would take a whole year for all their ranking points to disappear. Okay, they don't just remove them immediately. Yeah. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying about um, lack of personality, but that's my point about, she's a bit of a contradiction because she's taken some, you know, pretty interesting steps, like, retiring the first time to play cricket when she was so young and then coming back and becoming an, a three-time slam champion and then retiring again when she's seemingly at her peak. I know she's had a few injury problems and, but it doesn't look like anything that she can't handle. Yeah. You know, she talks about Casey Delacqua, her really good friend, who's the, you know, the former, her former doubles partner and um, she's recently become engaged to her, um, her partner, who's a golf pro. 
and uh, you know she talks very fondly about her relationships with her, you know Craig Tizer, her coach, and and her her juniors coach, all these like friendships and relationships with people close to her. Like I guess that's what she cares about the most. She doesn't care. She she calls herself a homebody. She doesn't like to party. Um, despite her name rhyming with party. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of wasn't quite sure how I was going to do this, but I think so many times in my life, both my professional and my personal, you've been there for me. Um, and I just couldn't think there's no right way, there's no wrong way. It's just my way. And this is perfect for me to share it with you, to talk to you about it, um, with my team, my loved ones, that I'll be retiring from tennis. And it's the first time I've actually said it out loud and um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but I'm so happy and I'm so ready. And I just know at the moment in my heart for me as a person, this is right. And um, I know I've, I've done this before, um, but in a very different feeling. And I'm so grateful to everything that tennis has given me. It's given me all of my dreams plus more, but I know that the time is right now for, for me to step away and chase other dreams um, and yeah, and to, to put the rackets down. I, I know that people may not understand it and that's okay, I'm, I'm okay with that um, because I know that for me, um, Ash Barty, the person, has so many dreams that she wants to chase after um, that don't necessarily involve traveling the world being away from my family, being away from my home, which is where I've always wanted to be. It's where I've grown up and I'll, I'll never, ever, ever stop loving tennis. Um, it'll always be a massive part of my life, um, but now I think it's important that I get to enjoy um, the next phase of my life as, as Ash Barty the person, not, not Ash Barty the athlete. Uh, yeah, it seems pretty clear that she's, she doesn't have a lot of interest in uh, leaving Australia for extended periods of time. That's not something that that appeals to her. Yeah, I guess that's it. That could be it. Yeah, as a tennis fan, it's hard to swallow, for me personally, because I I like her game, and I, and she really carries the torch for Australian Aboriginals. It's cool. It's, I think it's cool for everyone to see to see a woman in Australia representing their their people, being the best, the absolute best. That's always a cool thing, you know. Yeah, just to circle back on something uh, I was saying before to Matt that, you know, the first one of the first things that came to my mind was like what happened with Naomi Osaka at Indian Wells and how like she just, repeat, you know, continues to seem so deeply uncomfortable with the way the world, you know, like treats her now that she is a that she is this celebrity athlete, the uh, the weight of expectations, you know, that the difficulty like dealing with like a you know a lone heckler and kind of what that triggers for her and it seems kind of like Osaka doesn't really take joy in the sport at all and like I wouldn't be so surprised if Naomi Osaka did this because it very outwardly seems like she's struggling to a point where maybe she needs to kind of step away for herself and get some get some distance and perspective you know these things can be undone like Tom Brady just yeah. retired from football like three months ago and now he's playing again. 
Yeah, that was just the shortest for time. And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it may have been less than that. So it's even with, with Ash being 25 years old, it's not inconceivable that she could have a change of heart. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to really know what she thinks, I think. Yeah, did you guys watch the Casey Delacqua interview on Instagram? No, I haven't watched it. No. I, I, you will learn nothing. <laughs> like you know it's pretty much like her friend just asking her about it and ash kind of says yeah it's it's just time for me i want to spend more time with my family like you know like it's it's like one of these very like clean yeah there's, there's no surprises in it or anything yeah right this is i want to i want to chase after some other dreams that that i've always wanted to do and always have that really healthy balance but um i'm really really excited you know, she she could be pregnant, or there might be some other extenuating reason. But yeah, people were sort of suspecting that actually that she might be pregnant even before this re- retirement announcement. But but who you know, it's just all speculation. Who knows? But um, right. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and and she does strike me as the sort of person who doesn't really feel eager to share details of her mm. personal life with the world, mm. which is cool. I really respect that. Yeah, I mean, it's an option, right? It's uh. You don't have to put yourself on display. Mm. No, I just, I just think, cause if I was like a tennis player or a celebrity, I, I think I would be pretty into like, <laughs> into the fame and glory. And I think I would probably want to be sharing, sharing stuff and getting feedback and be like, whoa, um, you know? Yeah. So I really actually respect someone who's like humble enough to be like, no, you know, I just want to live my life. I don't think I'm anyone special. Yeah. I think it's affected my attitude towards her because I just don't have any affinity or any sort of like pull towards her at all. And I think a big part of it is because she's so guarded and uh, it doesn't let anything out. Even when she's playing, it's all just so muted and internal. Yeah. But I just, I've always had a hard time connecting with her. Uh, and it's good for her that that's her choice that she's wants to, she feels like she can have more success or be more in control by being careful about what she shares and, and whatever. So, you know, I mean, she's been world number one for a really long time now, so it's working, but it's, it's definitely struggled to become a fan of hers. Same. She could have won more slam. She could have, she could have gone down as one of the best women players of all time. Yeah. Well, you know, Craig Tizer was saying that uh, she couldn't win the U.S. Open. Yeah, I heard about it. Change the balls because <laughs> of the balls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, she's definitely not going to win it now. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know they did that. Is that the only slam they do that for? Or do they do that everywhere? I think it's the only slam. I remember we researched it at the time. Yeah, it seems insane to me. I thought that was the general case. I thought that men and women use different balls. Like they just. You know, they had a different selection to kind of suit the the game styles. It didn't seem controversial to me, but I guess yeah, it's not not necessarily the case everywhere. Mm. I never even crossed my mind before. Anyway, in tennis procedural news, they decided that all four slams are now going to have the same fifth set tiebreak or final set tiebreak rules, which it feels like such a inconsequential change in the grand scheme of things like it's not really that interesting but at the same time i don't love it like i 
did appreciate that the slams were different, you know, like I, I don't think we want them all to be exactly the same. I mean, the length of matches is a problem, but I like that they all had like quirky little variations on the theme, you know, like does it, mm. is it really that hard for the players to kind of understand like, oh, you play the 10 point super tie break in Australia and at Wimbledon, you got to go to 12 all. Yeah. You know, I, I love those quirks of the sport. You know, I love that, like that, that epic Federer Djokovic match is the one time that we'll ever see a final go to 12 all and in, in a tie break. Uh, at Wimbledon, you know, it's a fun little footnote. I didn't mind that they all did the same thing, but I wasn't super happy with the thing they chose to all be. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, did did they all go to the super tiebreak? I think so. I think I would have liked the Wimbledon version to go everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I think they. I think they just. I think it's just a ten point tiebreak when it gets to um, six all in the fit, right? I think. Right. The, the match tiebreak, they call it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. I don't feel like playing a tiebreak to 10 makes the tiebreak more interesting. No. What was the US Open before? Because I can't. I know Roland Garros was just traditional go forever until someone wins two by two games. But what was the US Open? Um, it was a traditional fifth, like final set tiebreak. Six all, seven point breaker. Okay. Okay. That's right. So yeah, US Open was seven point normal tiebreak. Australian Open was six all. It's it's a ten point tiebreak, and Wimbledon was go to twelve all and then do a normal seven point tiebreak. Yeah, and the French <laughs> Open held out with he could go on and play as many games. Yeah, which I yeah sort of like, but I think as a player, I'd probably just be pretty happy they pulled the pin on that one. <laughs> yeah. I, that's why the 12 all thing made sense to me because it's like yeah. all right we're going this is overtime like yeah. this is not a typical thing it doesn't happen at other tournaments um it's a really extreme scenario if you know if somebody has a clear advantage in a tiebreaker like you want to break them you know um Federer wanted to break he was you know well he did break he broke and served for it and failed to convert and then broke internally <laughs> yeah and his his knee like his yeah. knee ligaments just gave up. Yeah, that's so right. That was it. That was the end of the career. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, like the t- you know they talk they've talked about this on the tennis podcast, and it's like you know they they they're really bugged about the men and women matches not being the same at at the slams, and I think that's probably a more worthy thing to try and equalize. But Definitely. it's tricky because five set tennis can be awesome, right? Like I would love women's tennis to be five sets at slams. I would love it so much. It just feels like they go so quick. Yeah, and I it, like there's no chance for comebacks, you know, like when somebody, sometimes you'll see somebody building momentum and they don't really get that opportunity. And I've been playing w- weekly. There's sort of this comp out at Homebooks that I, I play in and they do the fast four scoring there. So first to four, mm. and if you get to three all, it's a tie break. And it's so bad. <laughs> and you, go down a, you go down a break and it's basically, the set's basically over and you got to try and, you know, and usually I'm I'm used to going down a break or whatever and i always can feel like i can come back and win it like i've come back from one five and stuff before and and win a set but when it's for first to four it's just it just feels like you can't get any momentum you can't do anything and then obviously the best of three normal sets is better than that but it to be the big if the slams i think it would be really nice to see the women go to five because you see yeah, there's comebacks, you know, there's no chance to come back. And there's, uh, and I, 
people always say the best of five always, the best player always wins. No matter if there's terrible conditions or one player's like having an off day or whatever, if you draw it out to the best of five, the best player of the two is always going to win. Yeah, I, I do feel like best of three gives more opportunities for upsets. Like, look, I so, you know, I, I had the pleasure of attending Tennis Paradise uh, last week for the first time. I have, I have more to say about how, how much of a paradise it really was. But, um, I, you know, Indian Wells is a great tournament. And I love the fact that both men and women are playing three set matches and all the best players are there. And it's a big draw, you know, so you have all these great matches, but you don't have these like interminable matches. Because I do think in the early rounds, it just sometimes that best of five in the early rounds is a drag, you know, and and then and the men eat up so much time on court, you know. I agree. Sometimes I do feel a bit drained by the best of five in early rounds. I think I would be down for a across the board men's and women's best of three up until the second week or whatever, and then yep. go best of five. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. That mm. is that the tennis podcast has been beating that drum, and I'm fully on board with that. Yeah, I think. Yeah, because then you know, like you're the number of matches is decreasing exponentially, right? Like so you. Mm-hmm. You get into that final week and there's only so many, but to like, you know, ratchet up the intensity for both men and women, I think that would be, that would be pretty delightful in my book. Yeah. I never used to be on board with that. I used to be just like, keep the best of five for men on the whole way and bring the best of five for women the whole way. But now I think about it and now I've seen too many early round matches of go to best of five when they just really were just sort of average matches anyway, that just happened to keep going forever. <laughs> And like now I'm like, yeah, best of three for the first week to be sure makes sense. And I, you're right. Like, and then by the t- by the second week and there's, there's less matches. So all those matches can be on better courts anyway. And, then, and you have a best of five on a good court, no matter who it's playing. And yeah, it's, it seems like such a good scenario. Hey, um, does the tennis podcast say anything about like, is there a move from the women's game? Like that they want this, they want to be playing five sets. Cause I kind of wonder right. if like you were playing and training and everything and there's opportunity to play longer you might be like you know what i'm you know players are getting injured we're playing we're we're training and playing hard as it is do we really want to play even more tennis why why would we ask uh women what's what they think is best for them though matt (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that's that's kind of my point like we are saying yeah you know they should should do it um or be fun for the spectators. Yeah. But I guess, you know, it's never going to actually be a thing unless there's a serious push from the women's association, from women players and the WTA to be like, we really want this. Yeah, that's a, it is a, it's a really fair point. I, I don't know. I, I get the impression that there isn't a big push for it, but it's interesting because, you know, we, they've, they've managed to like fight for equal prize money at the slams and you know, it seems to me, and you know, obviously, just I'm, I have the spectator's perspective. I can totally get not wanting to put in those extra hours, like, um, but as a spectator, uh, it does feel like you know a lot of the complaints about women's and men's matches not being perceived as being of equal value is somewhat derived from the fact that like women play three set matches and men play five. So it's just a matter of time on television, right? Like if you have a night session with a women's match and a men's match, the men's match is almost always going to be longer. And it's possible that it's like twice as long. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, just from a 
perspective of like, hey, both women's and men's tennis are awesome, and I kind of would like them both to receive equal airtime. That's that's one of the ways. And yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know how much of a movement there really is for it, or if it's just something that like tennis nerds uh, like to speculate about. Mm. Well, tell us about Tennis Paradise. Yeah, Tennis Paradise. Um, did you know that uh, beers in Tennis Paradise cost $12? Give us some reference. And... <laughs> some reference? What do you mean? Well, like, what's the usual beer or sporting event in America? Oh, yeah, it's probably it's like $12. I, the, the joke is that... I, I'm sorry to explain a joke. I, like, it's... It's still just a sporting event, and they like they have so they have so fully embraced this slogan of calling it tennis paradise. But hang on, so what? Just give me like, what's a beer cost a pint or whatever at a pub? I just have no idea how much a beer is over there. Oh, sure, at a pub, five or six bucks. Okay, right, right, right. So yeah, so it's like inflated stadium prices. You know, it's it's inside the grounds. It's pretty much exactly what you expect. You know, there's uh, there's a food court with like terrible options and really long lines. And, you know, Fila has like a little tent where you can go and buy like sports clothing. And, you know, there's probably, I didn't see it, but like, you know, there's probably somebody walking around inside a giant tennis ball somewhere, you know, <laughs> and like taking pictures with people, you know, they, there's like a little lawn where people, um, they actually have a very nice lawn area with the, you know, with the big screen that people can kind of sit down and watch the matches in between. Oh uh, yeah. I've seen seen pictures of yeah, that yeah it's a really nice setup and the, the champagne area that they keep showing in between every changeover on tv <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh it's i mean the grounds are nice you know mm. i've i've been to enough tennis tournaments i mean it's certainly it's a it's a more pleasant ground experience than like the u.s open um which is so hectic that it's just you know it's it's sort of chaos but really what makes it paradise is the is the location in the california desert surrounded mm. by mountains and i think you could probably get a sense for it a little bit on tv but it's it's the sort of thing where like you see a mountain range in the distance on television and like it doesn't it doesn't like hit you over the head emotionally you know, like mm. you can't feel connected to it. You don't have that sense of place. But when you're sitting there in the like cool, dry air and like you're just surrounded by these beautiful views. Um, and, all, you know, another thing that's actually really delightful about it is that it's it's not it's not in a major city or anything. So it's super quiet. Mm. You know, you go to the U.S. Open or the Australian Open, even, you know, you sit up high in the stadium and you can kind of hear the noise of the city and there's no city noise. You know, like hmm. you can go sit up high and it's it's quiet, which is uh, that's kind of cool. I like that. Pretty awesome. Yeah. And dust storms, desert storms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole the whole time we were there, we were staying up north an hour, like in Yucca Valley, which is right by the Joshua Tree National Park. Mm. And the temperature is like twenty degrees colder up there, and it was basically freezing at night, and oh. there were like twenty-five mile per hour winds. <laughs> so, so we were like in these, you know, we stayed in this. Our friend Joe like booked this amazing, like kind of glamping style rental place. You know, like uh, Molly and I were staying in a yurt, 
And, um, (laughs) you know, uh, some of our friends were staying in like little, like, you know, camper vans on the property and there's a hot, there's a hot tub and a fire pit, but like, we basically all just had to shelter inside. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Because the weather was so extreme. Um, and yeah. Yeah, right. It did look extreme. Does it always like that? Because that looked extreme. I don't think so. I mean, again, the weather's better down in Mm. Indian Wells. Um, cause we we're like up in the mountains where we were staying, mm. but the wind was pretty insane. And I, the days we, we only attended two days that there wasn't that much wind on site during those days, mm. but the, the last couple of days of the tournament, they were, they were fighting the elements. Yeah. Like there were some points with, uh, with Rafa and Alcaraz yeah. that just looked like, uh, you know, it looked like something had gone wrong in the simulation, you know? Yeah, it just looked like some average club players, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, balls going t- sideways. Yeah, yeah, People not timing down. the ball. Yeah, yeah, they both <laughs> fell down, didn't they? Not timing the ball, just these really high loopy shots with no pace on them. Yeah, it was yeah. bizarre to see that. <laughs> yeah, um, but really my biggest complaint about Tennis Paradise is that the, the second day when we were on our way down, we were trying to show up basically on time so we could mm. go see medvedev and we got off the highway at, at 11 a.m and we didn't get into the grounds until about 1 45 p.m oh and and it's not like there was a drive like we were in standstill traffic there was no real direction we basically like sometimes the car wouldn't move for 10 minutes nobody was kind of like directing traffic we would uh. end up pulling into a lot like they closed one of the major parking lots right as we got there. Oh. And then they just like, they just like wave you on and you're like, where the hell are we going? We've been in our car for two hours. Like oh. people were losing their minds. And yeah, that was pretty upsetting. <laughs> That's a terrible start to the day. Yeah. Terrible. I would struggle to like get it back on track. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And That's right. so like, I'm like, kind of seething you know mm. and i get there and i'm like oh shit cord is up on rafa like oh. he's up double break in the third like this oh. is amazing i'm gonna see this huge upset and like cord is taking a step forward and then rafa came back which just made me put me in a worse mood <laughs> um, <laughs> um it it felt like a test you know like we're waiting in line at the pearly gates you know <laughs> trying to get into paradise and it's like okay well if you lose your mind you're not you're gonna not, go to you paradise. don't deserve to be in it exactly yeah that's right that's right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i'd be that'd be fucking turning me away at the gates if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh anyway yeah um but worth a visit. <laughs> worth, a visit. <laughs> worth a visit. If you can get in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you can get in. Afterwards, we were, you know, I think this is a little post hoc rationalization. We were like, maybe we just don't know how to do this right. And if we do it again, we'd like stay in the town and take an Uber or, you know, like mm. take a car somewhere close and then walk in. Is there a town? Like Indian Wells is like a population of what? 700 or something yeah there's a town it's it's very much like a country club town but there's neighboring towns like it's it's like a you know two towns away from palm springs which is where you Mm. fly into um which by the way has like the most amazingly delightful airport you'll ever see it's Mm. mostly outdoors there's like grassy lawns you can sit on it's like airports to me are one of the last places on earth i ever want to be and somehow they made a good one 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty good vibes out there overall. And I, I would seriously recommend a visit. But yeah, if you drive, you want to go early. And that was, you know, it was a trick for us because we were a big, you know, we had five people going and we had to check out of our Airbnb. So it was uh-huh. like... We were a little bit later than I would have liked to have been. Mm. And I think if we had gone, if we had gone like an hour earlier, it would have been totally fine. But you just got into a a traffic jam and there's probably like only one road in and. Yeah, pretty much. Still though, still though, this is, it's not like they weren't expecting cars to this massive tennis tournament. (laughs) Yeah, no, it, it, I. I, I've kind of mellowed on it a little bit because I thought about like the whole day I was thinking about the angry letter I was going to write, you know, and like I was demanding my parking fee back and like just berating them for not like handling the logistics properly. Like, where's your, where's your ingress planning? Like, you know, I just, I can, I could go completely nuts about it. And then afterwards you just are like, well, I'm in tennis paradise. I might as well try to enjoy the day. Yeah. And, um, but it is, it is unacceptable. Apparently, um, Jim Courier was like, uh, complaining about it on the tennis channel, but I think it's the sort of thing like the, the media doesn't pick up on because they all have, you know, they have media passes. They just go right in, you know, they're taken care of, you know, they don't really care what happens to people so much, but like, man, if I had traveled from Europe or Australia to go to this event and I missed multiple hours after spending thousands of dollars to go to this place like i would be livid it's really unfair to the people who want to go and it's just bad planning and Mm -hmm. bad management like there's no no reason it needed to be that that awful this is a good on the ground update david you do well there i really get a sense of some of the of how i felt to go there well done (laughs) yeah thanks yeah, it does sound really beautiful with the mountains and the lack of city noise. And yeah, it does look very beautiful. Yeah. And you can basically get it like we had, we bought like nosebleed tickets in the in stadium one. And, um, you know, like most tennis tournaments, that's basically, that's also a ground pass. So you can go anywhere and you can get into all the other stadiums with a ground pass. And um, stadium two, which is probably the best stadium uh, of the bunch just has a great vibe up top i mean you know i don't i'd rather be close if i if i could and you can't sit in the bottom rung because that's where they sell tickets but but yeah you can go everywhere and i don't think it was ever a problem trying to get into a match even though Mm. that saturday was like the busiest day i think they had ever had in the history of the tournament like Mm. they have more seats than they can fill okay that's good yeah i hate it when a a tournament is bragging about their attendance but they can't actually handle it (laughs) But, yeah well but they couldn't least... on the on the on the inside you know <laughs> yeah yeah and so apparently they could cram more if they wanted to so you know uh it's a, it's a mixed bag there also the also the bleachers are kind of shitty like my back mm. was hurting the whole time so mm. they, they need to i would like larry ellison to invest in some like you know bull ring style like mm. show court two three style places because uh the ao and even even the u.s open kind of kind of betters them when it comes to like the actual seating comfort Mm. on those courts but anyway speaking of larry and someone who was courtside watching some of the big matches a few days in a row how was ben stiller down there (laughs) one of the biggest (laughs) rafa fans i've ever seen yeah Um, you know i mean he was always respectful to rafa's opponents um yeah, no, it's true. But I've seen him at US Open Rafa matches too. He seems to always pop up just specifically for Rafa matches, which I love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like of all the celebrities to really 
get behind you, you know, mm. to be like, like that's the that's the core. Ra- it's like Spike Lee is for the Knicks. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like ben Stiller is for Rafa. Like, okay. yeah. Um, who is it? Uh, like uh, Jimmy Butler shows up for Sasha Sparrow's matches, yeah. which is a little little. I dicey. know. Come on, Jimmy. I really like. I really like Jimmy Butler, but I hate that he loves Zverev so much. <laughs> yeah. I hate that anyone loves Zverev. <laughs> How can anyone in their right mind support him? Yeah. Um, my love for Jimmy Butler just keeps growing to the fact that he's like super into coffee and he's made his whole coffee business now on the side called Big Face. But he's also pretty into tennis, obviously, with the Zverev thing, but now he's got, a, he's got his own coffee pop-up at the Miami Open. Oh, no shit. <laughs> yeah, so he's just like combining all my all my things into one, but he's just got this big blip on his on his score of, of um, loving Zverev. <laughs> yeah, how did that happen? Mm. Was, somebody's got to do a little investigative journalism there. Like, mm. it seems like such an odd mix, you know. But also, as Matt was saying, why would anybody go for Zverev, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, there was this sort of side story during Indian Wells because, like, Cam Norrie was the defending champion and they put him out on court five, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where's where's Sasha Zverev? You know, he's on court one or two. It's like, y'all, you know that this guy sucks and we shouldn't be promoting him. So why are the tournament organizers putting him on the main courts? And he still gets yeah. applauded. You know, it's not like he shows up and gets booed. Um, it's really mystifying to me at this point. You know, there's an overwhelming respect and support for just being a top athlete and he gets it he gets it until he's been unequivocally convicted or there's just enough public outcry that makes him persona non grata i mean it's we shouldn't be really surprised because uh allegations like that don't always result often they don't result in any kind of action happening and it's just left to be like, yeah. well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Uh, he's still a good tennis player, and well, he's, he looks good on court, and he seems like a nice guy. I'm not going to get involved in any what may or may not have happened. Yeah, right. And it's like, you know, it's one thing to overlook a single incident, but it's like when it starts to turn into a pattern of behavior and, like, the violence towards the chair. I know, like, Kyrgios was kind of getting some flack because of the way he smashed his racket after losing to Rafa, and it was kind of near a ball kid. But there's still a really critical difference. Like, Zverev went after the umpire. Like, that was directed at the umpire. Yeah. Like, how is he How is he still playing? Like, it's unreal. And it does send a bad message. Like, the slap on the wrist isn't noticed. What's What should be noticed right now is Zverev not being at a tennis tournament. Um, so, yeah, so on a scale of 1 to 10, Matt, I was, uh, you know, nine and a half out of ten pleased that Tommy Paul got the better of Sasha's very good <laughs> how about yourself how do you feel one to ten I was ten out of ten I was very I was heavily invested in Zverev losing and I was watching it live and I Tommy Paul couldn't have played that tiebreaker any better because it went to yeah. the third set tiebreaker didn't it yeah Zverev was turning it around yeah, Paul got it back just in time. And he was, yeah, he was sensational. It reminded me of that time we we saw Tommy Paul beat Dimitrov at the Australian Open. And I think that was the first time a bunch of us had uh, ever really watched Tommy Paul. Yeah, yeah that was, was a great like, match. Oh. Yeah, his game is really actually pretty fun to watch. But he, and I, his ranking's been on the upswing, but it doesn't seem, you know, 
Yeah, it was a nine out of ten for me because it's got a the ten out of ten. I need Zverev to have have a match point and double fault on his own match point. That's what I need. <laughs> he only <laughs> double faulted on break points here, didn't he? Yeah, I need it to be like psycho more psychologically crushing and damaging for him for it to be ten out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like it would need to be somebody like who should never ever beat Zverev, beating mm. Zverev. Or like somebody I really love, yeah. uh, for it to be a ten out of ten, and that's that's why I deducted half a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I I just think there are there are better sphere of humiliations out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's true. We should leave a bit of margin for like even better humiliations. <laughs> I just I just really I I need yeah it needs to be it needs to be him collapsing and and ruining it for himself you know what i mean like him having it within reach and then him buckling and doing something dumb and losing it so so he really can't sleep that night that's all i need it to be <laughs> yeah not just someone beating him but him beating himself an, an on-court meltdown where he like hopefully doesn't hurt anybody like he almost did on the last time bit uh where he really self-destructs and maybe has a mental breakdown and is crying and really really just <laughs> disgraces himself and, and maybe maybe says but i thought and then the crowd starts to boo him and he's like but i thought you loved me i i, I want your love I, I need your love i i don't think i can but i'm a good tennis player why don't i play some chocolates why didn't they go in <laughs> Do, do you guys remember a few years ago at the AO how he was like, because there were the bushfires happening, this was like the, the world disaster uh, prior to COVID-19, yeah. and uh, he was like promising, like, if I win the tournament, I'm going to donate all my money <laughs> to charity, Yeah, which is so fucked up. Like, <laughs> A, you should be donating the money because you think it's the right thing to do no matter what. It shouldn't be conditional. It's like, yeah. guys, if you get behind me, I might win the tournament, and then I might do something good like yeah. fuck that like what an asshole ah oh, it's just unreal um, i know it's even you know like if, if he gets to the fourth round or something that's still a couple hundred thousand dollars you can you're still welcome to donate some of that you know? yeah like did he because i think he made the semi and is it like he took his million dollars and was just like well i don't have to give anything <laughs> like, what the fuck um, oh, so what he did there, what he managed to do there was tie up his glory with a noble act and the Australian bushfires. So it would yeah. have been a victory. It would have been a glorious victory for charity and for Zverev in one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, I don't think people realized at the time just how fucked up that was. Um, Maybe because, you know, in the thick of it, it's like, oh, I guess, I mean, it's kind of a nice gesture. I mean, he's showing that he cares, right? Isn't that, is this caring? I don't know. <laughs> oh, um. fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> this whole season, this whole tennis season on the men's side has been 100% about Rafa, right? Like, he's mm. been incredible. He's played the best matches. The Indian Wells, it just felt like the men's tournament was who's Rafa's playing who, who is Rafa yeah. playing and what's the drama there and um, you know and I basically always want to root against Rafa like that was that, that Alcaraz match I was like you know what I'm going to go for Alcaraz 
Other, if I don't go for Alcaraz, if I don't start getting on Team Alcaraz, I'm gonna be really miserable for the next like 20 years because that kid is amazing. And he is very Rafa like, you know, in his physicality and like he's Spanish. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, like, so I'm trying to find the, the ways that I, I, I can, you know, like, I think my problem with Alcaraz is he's like, he's a kid and he doesn't have much of a personality yet. He's 18 years old. You can see it at times, even though he's like clearly a out of this world athlete. And, um, but I'm like, oh, he doesn't have Rafa's tics, you know, like <laughs> he does the weird owl eye thing after he wins matches. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, yeah. I don't know. How do you how do you feel about Alcaraz, Alex? I really like him, and I think even just in the couple of years, the last two seasons, I guess maybe that I've been watching him, he's just getting crazily good in front of our eyes, and it's pretty exciting to watch. So even his serve is getting better and better. It seems like every match, and the fact that he can go from winning a title on clay in Rio and then just coming here to Indian Wells, going to the semis, or I think it was the semis, right? Yeah, and then and just yeah. still backing it up and backing it up. And I don't know, he seems like he's got just, he's got the clay court movement and spin, then also can flatten everything out on hard court and can move just as well on hard court and be defensive and attack. And he's got that drop shot that somehow he makes work on hard court, which no one else really can do it that well. Um, he's not scared to come forward, uh, and he just—I'm just—I'm just been more impressed with him every time I see him. And I haven't seen someone—I haven't really followed someone that good from this young before. So I'm mm. really on board to just watch this huge talent just get better and better in front of our eyes and start dominating and probably take over tennis. I, it's pretty exciting to me to watch him. I'm on board. Yeah, cool. How about you, Matt? you have any feelings about Alcaraz at this point in time? Oh, really, to be honest, yeah. I was, I was rooting for Rafa because I, I want to see, I want to see how far, I wanted to see how far Rafa's streak could go. And right. yeah, as for Alcaraz, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I see how good he is and, and everything, but there's not a lot of, there's not, yeah, there's not a lot of players I love and he hasn't done anything. Mm. He hasn't have a compelling story for me yet, but that could change. Yeah. I am, um, I am interested in, in Rafa and Roger and Novak just because of all of the history and, you know, I have a, sh yeah, we, we all as tennis lovers have a shared history of players that have been around for a while and we remember them and they become kind of linked like for, for me, you know, some of the, the players that I used to watch with my grandma, like have a special place. Cause I'm like, oh, that's a bit of it. That's a connection. Right. She's been, she's been dead for 10 years, but, um, you know, some of the players we watch together are still playing. And I especially like Rafa, his mentality that, that seeing how far that mentality of not giving up and just this crazy focus, even when he's injured you know, not letting that be an excuse. And he still, you know, like he still tried to, he didn't really make that an excuse, he, even though he was obviously, there were medical issues, but he seemed like he still thought he could beat Fritz in that final. And Oh, he, he definitely could have. Yeah. I wonder if that's, I wonder if that was a mistake now in hindsight, 
because now that he's gone home and realized he has a fractured rib. Oh, that's what happened. Oh, I wow. didn't realize it was definitely fractured. Yeah, so he's got, he's got a stress fracture and he's out for four to six weeks. Mm, that's ruined his prep for Roland Garros. I think maybe if he, he had have known that, he would have played the final. <laughs> yeah, well, he was trying to get the diagnosis, but it didn't come. And he was like, Man, well, I don't. Because it was one, he played at night, the semifinal, and he played the the final in the day. Mm. And he, did, he was saying yeah. in a press conference that, well, you know, there was something there that was affecting his breathing, maybe a rib. But no one could really tell him what it was. So he, he was just in typical Rafa fashion. He just got on with the job. Yeah. He, um, you know, in that tiebreaker in the second set against Fritz, he had a, uh, a swinging volley at the net that would have given him two set points that he blew. And I think if he had made that, he would have won the match. You know, like I, I just, even though he was clearly hobbled, he still found a way to compete and and be right there to the bitter end and you know fritz fritz also should be commended for his effort and hanging in there and not letting the moment get the better of him and he was also fighting an injury he he hurt himself pretty badly that morning yeah and he wasn't sure he was going to play so it was two wounded guys but you know rafa rafa seemed more affected by it during the match and um yeah but i i just wanted to say matt like I, i think you're totally right about like how the the narrative means so much to to me and you know the connections i have with the big three are so much deeper so to get excited about an 18 year old coming up i have to really like there has to be something in the personality that i'm immediately attached to or otherwise there's not there's just not enough history there yet and it can come you know like i was thinking as you were saying that like you know, Tsitsipas is my guy right now of the next gen. And I think I'm a little worried that Alcaraz is going to just dominate everybody. And you're going to have, an, you know, there could be another lost generation, you know, a guy like, like maybe Tsitsipas is Joe Wilford Sanga, you know, like <laughs> got to a final and that's it. And um, I think he's better than Sanga ever was, but y- you get the the meaning. Yeah. It's like, but, but also Tsitsipas is a guy that now like, you know, my partner Molly and I, like, we both love him. He's like our guy. And there's there's a connection that goes beyond. And uh, you start to build up those stories and you remember more of his matches and where you were and how we watched that final against Novak, like, you know, at Molly's old house with her kids. Like, I need those threads. It can't just be the play. But when I watch Alcaraz, like, I think I, I did. I kind of missed how good his movement and his touch were. Like his movement in that match against Nori, Nori is unreal. I Hmm. mean, he's like, he doesn't look like much, but he was planned lights out and Alcaraz gets to everything. It's, it's a little freaky. It's like video game cheat code stuff. And, um, so I don't know. I think I was starting to appreciate a little bit more of his game and I'm trying to reserve judgment because, you know, it may just be inevitable that this guy is going to rule. Yeah, there were some moments in the in the Montvies match where Montvies was just hitting these crazy shots corner to corner and Alcaraz kept getting them back. And Montvies at the end of the point was just laughing at him, just shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, get out yeah. of it, mate. Come on. <laughs> just give me a break. <laughs> I love how Montvies can be good humored about that. Yeah. You know? But, yeah. Because he, he's such a good character, even when, it, you know, like that must be frustrating to be playing really good tennis. And it's only this young kid who has better legs than 99% of the players out there. It's getting that last ball and 
and defeating you that way. And, and he can still smile about it. Well, I was just going to say, before we move on to the women's tournament, like it's the same thing with Serena, like if Serena Williams plays another tournament, I'm going to be glued to her, not because I necessarily love her or she's my favorite player, but because of all that history, you know, um, you remember watching matches with people, um, when she was playing and you remember different media appearances and, and her story, because it is, you know, it has been around for so long that it, it, it is connected with all other world events. So, you know, it's another example of a player I'm very interested in concerned about just for, just because she's been around. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Right. And you just never know with these guys, if they're going to hang it up. I mean, I can't remember who I was talking to about this or who said it, but maybe somebody in my group was speculating like, Hey, you know, next time Rafa gets a major injury, that might be it. You know, like, I mean, that's, that's kind of what happened with Roger. I feel like he's having his 35 year old season. Like Roger did a few years back where he like came back from injury and still had it and won the big tournaments and, you know, like started the year with this crazy streak. And it just seemed for a minute, like this guy could win everything, even now, even when we thought he was done, but then someday it stops. And, you know, like Rafa, man, I I mean, he's such a compelling figure. I don't know if we've talked about anybody as much on, on the pod, you know, maybe, maybe it's fair. Um, Mm. He, but he's, he's compelling. And, you know, I like having somebody to root against, you know, I I like caring that much, you know, so even though I don't want him to win, like, even though he kind of gets under my skin, like that's, that's part of it too. You know, like, I don't want to, if I loved everybody, (laughs) I wouldn't feel any emotional attachment to the sport. Right. It's like, you kind of need a little, little of that push and pull. And, you know, I mean, I'd rather Zverev just went away and, you know, he's like too easy of a villain. Like Rafa, like you cannot deny his, in, his greatness. He's one of the best athletes in any sport ever. I mean, he's just, there's so much to admire in his approach, his game, how he competes. And, you know, like, uh, I will miss him. Yeah, I, I'll miss him too. I love him. But when I think, you know, a little more, uh, deeply or about him or I look, I analyze, you know, the things he's saying in the press conferences recently, like, you know, I was just taught the right way. I was just taught to work hard and to never give up and never break a racket and just approach sport in the right way. This single mindedness to just keep your focus and to keep training and getting better and, um, focusing on every point, you know, like playing sport the quote unquote right way. Yeah. Um, it is a bit much like, yeah, like that's just totally. whatever. That's just like a thing. It's a bit too goody two shoes doing what the teacher tells you to do and like just running with it. And yeah. There it's like, there's a thin line between being inspirational and being totally inhuman. Like he doesn't seem human. He never gives up a point. He never gives, he never gives up a match. Even if he's got a broken rib, he's going to go out there and give absolutely everything and make no excuses. Yeah. And like, there's something to admire in that, but it's also kind of creepy. So, you know, see Rafa for me, he seems like he's a sage or he's some kind of monk or, you know, like 
you know, a, do a devotee of a certain type of meditation. And in the tennis kind of schema or the sports schema, he, he is that very much that picture perfect guru, uh, who's, who's reached enlightenment, but only for that right. one particular area, there's so much more to life than just being really good at sport. And I, and as you, you often call him inhuman, you do have to sacrifice so much of your humanity to have such single-mindedness in one, only one area. Yeah. Right. I would have no, I have no problem with, uh, I think it's great to, you know, to feel embodiment, to really embody something and to heighten your senses and to be more focused, but to what end is it just so you can win tennis matches or is it to really understand what it is to be alive and, mm. you know, um, to engage with where we're headed as a society or where the planet's headed or, you know, um, what political direction we're going in, all of these things, what love is, you know, there's <laughs> so much, you know, you could do, and the tennis player that like has those aspects to themselves as well, like, um, that interests me. Yeah. You're, you're totally right. It, it's, it seems almost impossible to keep all of that in balance. And I, yeah, I think to perform at that level, you basically, it's, it's necessary that you tune out everything else. Right. And uh, Rafa, Rafa recently in press conferences is starting to like sound more and more politician like mm. he like when he's asked, I think he was asked about Naomi Osaka's situation or something. And he just gives these very correct, graceful answers when, when he's asked about, you know, Taylor, you know, like losing the match to Taylor Fritz, like he tries to like deflect from himself, like, oh, it is not the time to talk about my injury, you know, and how I couldn't compete, you know, <laughs> like, you know. He like, is a and, paragon of good sportsmanship, good sportspersonship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And right. And it's it, it can be a little dull. I mean, I think there's something about the way he he speaks and you know like the way he reflects on his matches that that is kind of compelling like i think i do find him an entertaining interview uh but but yeah like the the depth isn't there i mean it would say the same thing about roger for sure like roger is just like i don't know if roger has an opi a real opinion about anything <laughs> and if he does he just keeps it to himself you know yeah, I think Rafa, Rafa, uh, Rafa is a bit more interesting to me than Roger, even though Roger's more sort of seems, seems more human because he's more polished and he's kind of like, uh, you know, a businessman, he needs to be jovial. He needs to be able to make some jokes and, uh, and, you know, interact and maybe it's because he speaks better English than Rafa does. I don't know, but, um, it's just a veneer with Roger. You get the sense like there's not much below the surface. I know he like the jokes he makes are awful. He never makes a good joke. <laughs> yeah. He's like a, he's a dad joke kind yeah. of guy. I mean yeah. that, that, but that's part of it. He's like, he's kind of just a goober and he's, he's, he's a little bit more playful. And yeah, I think is. with Roger, you kind of, you can sense his sadness a little bit more. I don't feel like Rafa real, like I don't, I don't see Rafa's vulnerability 
And I did a little bit after that Fritz match. I don't know if you saw this, if you watched the match to the end. And like after he had lost, he was sitting there in his chair, like with his head down, looking completely despondent. And he was he was untying his left shoelace with his right hand. And it's like, oh, man, he can't even move. <laughs> like, And he was just five minutes before swinging like, you know, like he was chopping down a tree. But it's so rare to see that, you know? So Roger, I feel like, just gives off more of an air of, like, relatable humanity. And Rafa seems more like the exceptional super athlete. And even though they're both exceptional super athletes, like, Roger is, to me, more relatable. But I also, in all of that, I think this is why Novak is ultimately kind of the most compelling of the three. Yeah. Because he's just... I don't know, he gives you a lot more. He gives you more emotional swings. He gives you bad political takes, <laughs> you know, like And he's... good political takes as well. Like he, yeah, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Yeah. But um totally. He's more more here. He's more uh, um unchipped. Yeah, he's he's the tragic figure in the triad. There's something like uh, kind of sad about his story in spite of all of his greatness. It's just so much more complex and yeah. And there's more, it's been more of a ride with Novak. Like I've felt pretty consistently the same about Roger and Rafa for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. If you were a filmmaker, you'd much prefer to make the film about Novak than the other two. Cause it'd be, it'd be way more interesting. Yeah. More swings and roundabouts. That's for sure. Yeah. We didn't talk about the women's, um, uh, tournament, but, um, what happened? Schwantek totally blew um, Sakari off the court. Yeah, and Sakari like had a great tournament, and she won a semifinal, which has been a problem for her beating Paula Bedosa, and uh, who was the champion from last fall. And uh, Sakari looked great. You know, like uh, those are your number two and number three players in the world, possibly number one and number two if you. Uh, I don't know. You're probably right, Matt, that they don't actually remove Ash Barty's ranking <laughs> because well, she announced her retirement, but I'm not sure. Um, for the future, anyway, yeah, Barty's not, not going to be a player, so it's these two. Yeah, it, the, the points might shake out different in six months when, the, when Barty's points start falling off. But, but yeah, Shvantec, I mean, she definitely has shown a lot more consistency and kind of some of that dominant form that we saw at the French a few years ago when she won um she's another player i'm it's i'm just having trouble really connecting with and uh whereas sakari is somebody i can love like i just i'm just so engaged by her personality and her fight and the fact that you know she can go off the rails and pull it back and play some sensational tennis so what happened what what happened to sakari in the finals well i think she was struggling a lot with the conditions I felt like in the semi and the final, like everything kind of hinged on her forehand. Like her backhand is rock solid, but it's not as much of a weapon. And the forehand is like how she could really put, you know, put points away, you know, hit winners. And she was just struggling to keep it in the court. And I'm sure it, I mean, it had a lot to do with Shiontek, but it was like one of these matches where I turned it on. It, there was like a really compelling first four games or so, because it was, you know, it was just four breaks of serve in a row. And it seemed like the level was good. And then I kind of like stepped away to like, you know, do some laundry or something and kind of kept the match running. And when I came back, it was like suddenly one sided. 
And so I never really got back into the match because it kind of it kind of just, you know, it was a little bit of a dud in the end. Mm. And Layla Fernandez had a great tournament. Yeah. Well, how far did she get? Did she get to the quarters? Well, Layla um, made she made the doubles semifinals, and she oh she only made the fourth round. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was looking well. It. I don't know. She was looking really good at times, but she also like I got to see that match that she played against Amanda Anisimova early. That was that was a big story because um, the tournament started with Darren Cahill leaving Anisimova's camp, like deciding that he couldn't be her coach. Yeah, and she's already somebody. You know, she lost her dad a few years ago, and she's she's had a bit of a ride with injuries, and but uh, she's a sensational player and has all this promise. And she was really kicking Fernandez's butt. Like we were up in the top row of stadium two watching that match. And there really wasn't much to see. And they had that second set tie break and kind of like in a blink of an eye, Layla had won that seven love. And this was after like Layla had saved three match points, I think on, uh, on uh on on return on um anisimova's serve and so we're like okay i you know i was like i gotta go get some food we left the stadium and as we got down to the like food court area like layla fernandez was giving her post-match interview and it was like what how can that be yeah yeah because she won the tiebreak seven love and then anisimova retired yeah. And so I guess the, she said that she wasn't feeling well and I, I didn't really hear anything else about it afterwards. Yeah. It's just amazing how quickly things can turn. You know, I was up in that stadium thinking like, damn, Anisimova, she's headed to the top of the game. <laughs> you know, like it just, you can see it and all the talents there, she's putting it together. And then suddenly it's like, was she really ill? Was she, did she, was she upset? Why did she retire? You know, she certainly didn't look like she physically couldn't perform. She was out there performing mm. at a really high level, but you know, maybe I just was, I was so far away. I couldn't really tell that maybe something went off with her physically. Um, yeah. Simona Halep had a great tournament. She lost uh, a much tighter uh, match against Shriantek in the semis um, where she had set points and couldn't convert in the first. Uh, she was looking really good, like looking like old Simona. And so it'll be interesting to see how she does on clay. Since that's always been kind of her strong suit. Yep, very good showing by Halep. Kudermatova had a great tournament. I had never really watched her before, but she was the one who beat Osaka in the match where somebody shouted out, you suck, Naomi. Mm. And uh, all the drama that ensued after that. So uh, yeah, Kudermatova, she, she reminds me a bit of Simona Halep, um, but maybe a little bit, a little bit less fiery, but kind of similar similar looks similar kind of play style and uh you know she's the 21st seed and you know she's beaten some top players she beat von Drusova after she beat uh osaka so she she kind of caught my attention a little bit yeah i mean it was you know there was some really entertaining stuff on the women's side but it, you know kind of felt like that final was a little bit of a letdown what about taylor fritz we we talked all about Rafa. What about uh, yeah Taylor Fritz. old Fritzy? Um, it was his dream to win. Oh, he's he's Californian, right? Yeah, that was his home tournament. That's what he went to as a kid. He he seems pretty happy to win his first 
big tournament in his home state. Yeah. And he's, he's got a connection with the tournament having gone there as a kid. He was, yeah, he was very happy in his press conference. And he, and he, and he couldn't believe it because he, he was almost going to pull out of the final. I would have worked out well for Rafi. He would have got his diagnosis of his fracture and he wouldn't have done extra damage. If Chris would have just retired after that horrible ankle injury that he had just in the, in practice the morning before. Yeah. The same morning. Yeah. He didn't think he was going to be able to do it. He like landed on his ankle and was in, it would like screamed in pain. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty amazing. I mean, this is the same guy who last year tore his meniscus, uh, and like four weeks later was playing in Wimbledon or something like that. Mm. Like he had surgery and was back on the court in a few weeks. So that dude has some pretty supernatural healing ability. Yeah. I pretty happy for the guy. I mean, it's not somebody I have a lot of feeling about. Um, certainly not like my favorite of the American set to watch, but he's, he's definitely gotten stronger as a player and to beat Rafa in a final. I mean, that might be his career defining moment, but We'll see. I don't know. See what he does in the slams. Yeah. He's good looking. He's good looking. He's got a he's got a girlfriend uh who's a TikTok oh, dear. star. Um he was actually married at eighteen years old and had it had a kid with his ex wife, who's I guess a few years old now. And um so it's like he like married his high school sweetheart, got divorced, and is now dating a TikTok star, which is just doesn't see it seems a little dissonant right like it's like he's such a like he's like he seems like a character out of the 1950s like 1950s america like he's got that winning smile he's like an american quarterback yeah the haircut totally the haircut is like kind of like you know when marty mcfly goes back (laughs) in time to when his parents were at the high school dance and it's like 50s yeah it was the 50s yeah it's like yeah, the, <laughs> yeah he looks like he's an extra from like you know uh biff's uh crew or something you know he's like a it's like a sweet jock who like everybody loves but he doesn't really get stuff um <laughs> he, he like you know you know what like like i feel like his perfect outfit would be a varsity jacket you know you know what varsity jackets look like yeah i know it's got a letter on it, a big letter of the school on it right yeah and they've got this i don't i don't know how to describe it it's almost, it almost looks like like felt material or something like it's paneling it's like yeah it's this very rigid like sporting jacket and yeah yeah you put your your sports letters on it i think i know from like you know like it's something like John Travolta, John Travolta puts on a varsity jacket with Rydell High School when he's <laughs> trying to be like straight edge and clean cut for Sandy because he's previously he's been yes. a, uh, like a leather jacket wearing up to no good uh, rebel. But then he puts on the varsity jacket, right? And tries to join the track team to be a bit more, and he puts out his cigarette and yeah, that's the varsity jacket, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's like clean cut. And then all his friends say, "What are you wearing?" <laughs> yeah, we get we could put in like "grease" is the word as our like exit music or something. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Um, yeah, I'm sad about Ashbody. Yeah, sorry that you feel that way. Andy Murray says he's happy for Ash, but he's sad for Tennis. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to put it. The Tennis Tragic thanks you for listening. All correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennistragicpod at gmail.com and our Instagram is at tennistragicpod.